Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster, and I'm here today with my friend Alan Mazarek. Alan and I have been in a CEO forum together for 15 years, 18 years. Oh, every bit. A long time. A long time. Uh, And Alan is currently uh, CEO of Avaya, which is an enterprise communications and customer experience company, um, uh, reasonably fresh off of a six-year run as CEO of uh, Vonage in the telco space. Um, And before that, uh, had uh, done a couple of raw startups, one called Ad Outlet, and then one called Quick Office, uh, which got acquired by Google. Uh, So Alan, uh, it's great to have you here and uh, would love to hear a little bit more about your story. Well, thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. It's great to be together. It's great to be together. So I want to start with the first time you and I met. So you and I met in the office of our mutual acquaintance or friend, Michelle James, when (laughs) when you had just started Ad Outlet. And uh, I was running uh, the online business at Movie Phone. And I was actually just looking at your LinkedIn profile <laughs> to figure out how to introduce you. And I'm not even sure I realized that you had run a couple companies before Ad Outlet that were in completely different spaces. Yeah. So let's start with, how did you get into ad tech in 1995 or six or seven? Well, you know, it's funny. You got to look at sort of the arc of your career in many ways. Um, I kind of think of it as um, in thirds. In a sense, so if you go back prior to uh, ad tech and even the startups before that, I had that sort of foundational time in my career. I was an, you know, I was an accounting major in college, worked as a public accountant at Arthur Anderson for five years, went back to business school, worked at a private equity firm in New York. And so that sort of whole underpinning, that, that foundation um, kind of started me on, on you know, a career trajectory that no one ever could have predicted. Nothing goes in a straight line, as we know. When I was at the private equity firm, I got my first opportunity to run something as an operator, which I found I really enjoyed. And it was just one of the portfolio companies. I probably had no business, you know, running them, but, the, the you know, the senior partner kind of plopped me in there. Um, you know, as I was sort of, you know, working now in operating roles, as in president-level roles, um, you know, then I had sort of, you know, you know, my own, you know, I look back in that experience and how the heck did I get into startups? Well, I got fired. I got fired by a board that I was fighting with. I was sort of, you know, didn't kind of realize politically how to handle that board. And I'm 33 years old and I get dumped, uh, after running one of these companies, not the company that was part of the portfolio company, but I'd gotten a headhunter now and was running something different. Long story short, is all of a sudden, by default, I became a startup guy because I had a friend from business school that uh, convinced me to come in with my finance background initially as CFO and then president and CFO uh, of my first startup, which predates Ad Outlet. So the middle third of my career is going to all of a sudden I became a startup guy. And over the course of almost 20 years, did three distinct startups in different industries and what's interesting about it is one they're different industries so the first one was in healthcare and technology second one as you said it was in ad tech and the third one was mobile applications and my results were first one we got public 
really quickly and the stock went up and that was great. And then it came right back down, which was less great. Uh, the second one at outlet lost my shirt, got crushed. And the third one was a very, very successful exit to Google. So you, you have this, the natural sort of craziness and dynamism of startup land was, you know, really interesting. And you learn so much through those challenges. Those of us who have been in startups, we know that's not easy. We all know that's not easy as all, at all. Um, and then interesting, I was at Google. I'd sold the company to Google. I had to, you know, spend some couple, two and a half years there and was a bit of a fish out of water and got recruited now to run Vonage. And Vonage was a transformation. And I'd sort of think of that Vonage for six years almost. And now here at Avaya, which is now this next third, which is now not doing startups, I'm running big companies and big companies that are in trans transformation. But I think it's really interesting is the startup experience where everything is a clean sheet of paper is there's a lot of analog between that to transformation where, quite frankly, you're having to act like it's a clean sheet of paper. And it's been a very different experience. A lot of the skills transfer, a lot of skills, you got to learn new things. That's right. I'm much better at it now here at Avaya than I was at Vonage just because you go through it once and you learn it. So that's how I, you know, how you get here is never a straight line. Never. So let's, let's zoom in on the middle section for a few minutes, right? Because uh, right? more of the people who are listening to Daily Bolster are, are startup and scale up people. Although I want to, I do want to get to the, to uh, Vonage and Avaya because that's fascinating too. Um, so uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the fact that you did startups in three completely different industries, right? So that's kind of what I've done, right? I did movies, uh, yeah. you know, then I did email and MarTech, uh, now yeah. doing, um, you know, recruiting and people tech. Um, what, why, how did that work for you? Like, what did you like about that? What was hard about that? Well, I think I tell people, people ask me about this often and I go, I wouldn't recommend it, honestly, because I think that while so much of business translates, you know, good leadership, um, understanding the importance of culture and talent, clarity on strategy, executional focus is applies everywhere. Um, there is challenges, in my view, now in hindsight, of not having um, the domain expertise that lets you be able to sort of trust your gut kind of right out of the gate because you don't know the industry. The subtleties and the relationships in the industries are very different and super important to have those relationships. So there it did it's it's it makes it interesting and challenging, but there is sort of a you know it creates a friction point because it's harder to scale as quickly. You know, my experience now Vonage, we moved into the same enterprise communication categories that Avaya sits in today. So I knew the industry very well. I am moving at warp speed here compared to Vonage because I didn't know enterprise communications. Mm -hmm. So there is just a, a practical advantage of knowing your space. Yeah, that's for sure. And look, I remember at Quick Office, you guys did a pretty significant pivot from where the company started. It even it had a different name. It was like uh, those memory cards, right? Into Mobile digital media. MDM, yeah. right. Um, yeah. So presumably that was um, part of the learning curve, although mobile was in such a rapid, um, you know, yeah. in dynamic mode the years uh, that you were there. When did you start that company? 2002. 
2002. We, so starting a mobile company. We sold company, it to Google in 12. Right. So starting a mobile company in 2002, right? You're five years before the iPhone, six years before the iPhone? Five years before the iPhone. Yeah. So you were on, you know, the Palm computing platform. That's like, exactly right. Um, you know, you had, you, it, it probably didn't, didn't matter as much in that one if you knew the space or not, because the space didn't exist. Like the space was just, was so nascent. It's so funny. I can remember all, those who, who are going to listen to this, this podcast are, are, um, you know, fairly going through, I'm sure rounds of financing, you know, with the various VC community. And I, you know, my goodness, Matt, you and I have done our sort of runs up and down Sand Hill Road a bunch of times in our in our backgrounds. Um, and I can remember sitting there with a very, very, you know, you know, smart, sophisticated VC on Sand Hill Road uh, in the early days. And the guy looked at me saying, no one's going to do productivity on a small screen device. I mean, I mean, so it's just the world changes. And that's that's the challenge of startups that those who have done it know we are rarely too late. Typically, we're too early. That's right. And then we run out of money because the market takes too darn long to evolve and to develop. So do you feel with quick office like you got there at the right time or um, or you were at least in the right place at the right time uh, as mobile started to explode? Um, yes, but. Um, well. 2002 till 2006 were kind of um, lean years for us. A of, That's a, lot a of, long lot of thrash. period. Of, yeah. There's a lot of thrash. It's a long period of time. And you're betting on a category that's coming in smartphones. You know, often in startups, in my experience, is, you know, you got to do the right things, but you also have a little bit of luck. Um, so while, you know, we had started with the Palm PDA and then moved into BlackBerry because BlackBerry was doing so well at the time, Nokia was our biggest customer, and we were, you know, in sort of all those back then. The operating system was called Symbian, um, but all but when the iPhone came out, July of '07, things started to improve for us. But we have to remember it didn't happen automatically because the 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 App Store for iPhone didn't come out until July of '08. The very first Android device was not until December of '08. So you have this period, it's lean years, and you're just trying to figure out which ways, you know, how do I create some escape velocity? Then you get some luck involved, which is the iPad came in in April of 10. And all of a sudden, the notion of doing mobile productivity just went on turbo boost. Um, and we rode that wave very successfully. So you got to be there in order to have an opportunity to ride the wave. But, you know, my goodness, in hindsight, if we'd started the company in 04, in 04, I'd have saved two years, maybe. Right. Uh, because we weren't making a great deal of progress in the first couple of years. And the business model was completely different. And we changed the name of the company, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I always say the role of luck and timing in startups is, you know, you, you can't you can't pay for it. Um, but it's exactly just right. so, so critical. I mean, you look at, you know, MySpace was there way before Facebook. Friendster was there way before Facebook. Plaxo was there before LinkedIn. You can just yeah. run run down the list. Palm Pilots, right? Palm sure. Pilots were going to change the world until no one ever heard of them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's so, stunning to think back that it wasn't that long ago. It was I not mean, that long ago. That's right. It's 20 yeah. years ago. It's crazy what's happened in 20 years. That's right. 
Uh, talk about Google a little bit. What was it? What yeah. was it like to be acquired by Google? You said you were you sort of felt like a fish out of water. I mean, I've heard from a, a lot of CEOs that have gotten acquired by Google that you know they sort of show up on day one. Google you know locks them in for a few years and then takes away their whole team. Um, uh, yeah. What was what was that period like for you? Well. I mean, you lived through that with me. Uh, I, I think I remember you guys on the CEO group that we were in uh, at one point were telling me, just shut up and vest in peace. That was my good friend, Matt, and others in our group told me. Because what happens, this is the way I you, And you were training for like an Ironman at the time. Yeah, I was in a couple of them at the time because I yeah. was bored. I had some, had some time on my hands. But um, the, they are a serial acquirer, and they do that really well. Um, but at the same token, um, they are going to take your company and sort of rarely keep it as a, you know, uh, an autonomous or semi-autonomous unit. In my instance, we were about 300 people who got sort of distributed into the various engineering and sort of product organizations. Um, and so they're very benevolent to the founder and CEO because, you know, Quite frankly, they've done this so much as being a serial acquirer. And often, actually, you look back, they have bought in, in, in times multiple companies from the same acquirer over the course of their now, you know, 20x, 25 year uh, history. Um, so if you're my age and a true general manager, you do kind of feel, at least my experience, you've been you kind of been dropped into a completely foreign landscape. You know, I always say if you're 30 years old and you're an engineer and you get there, may sometimes you feel like you've died and gone to heaven because it's great. Um, but it was just it was a weird for me. It was uncomfortable. And so but they were wonderful. And I learned a lot um, and made great friends. And they certainly attract a lot of smart people. But when, you know, the recruiters were coming and ultimately had the opportunity advantage, I was ready. I was ready because, you know. Uh, I'd taken a break in some respects. I had sort of recharged my batteries and was looking for the next challenge. And do you think Google does that with CEOs as an insurance policy? Like they don't they don't give you a media operating role unless you want well, presumably if you wanted one, they would have moved you into something else, but they sort of they want you there in case something goes wrong with what they bought or what what's the philosophy there? Maybe some of that. I think their history it's a little bit self-fulfilling in the sense that those of you who are listening to this, we are, uh, you know, I've been running big companies for you know, now a bunch of years, but I still consider myself a startup CEO. And if that's who you are, you're going to go back and do that again. And so in Google's situation, they're not going to move that startup CEO into sort of this core operating role just to have this person leave. So what happens often is you tend to sort of be on the bench in case something bad happens to your suggestions. You can be plopped back in. Um, but unless you really sort of throw yourself into it and you really, you know, really now are going to kind of be a, you know, a Googler, I, I think the expectation is you're going to go be a startup CEO again. And that's the experience. Um, and, you know, the other thing, you know, I may have changed in the last 10 years since I've been there, but they, I'm a general manager, period end. So, you know, in my role as CEO and president of various companies throughout my career, you're obviously bringing all the functions together. What Google was doing 10 years ago was separating creativity, product and engineering from commercialization, sales and marketing. And they did that by design because they didn't want product and engineering, the create, creative side of the house, to be sort of impaired or sort of suppressed by what it took to commercialize it. 
that was a, and I get that. It gives you the ability to think in these sort of 10x terms. Um, but as a general manager, that was difficult for me because that's not kind of who I am and how I think. Um, it doesn't mean one way is right and one way is wrong, but that was just the philosophy that they used back in the day when I was there. Right. Yeah, it's such a really interesting, uh, interesting chapter in your life. And so let's move forward now to Bonnage. Okay. So Bonnage, um, you know, for people who don't remember, started off as like the original IP phone, right? You got a bot. We were a bot. We actually might still be a Vonage customer. I don't even remember. <laughs> um, you got a box. You moved your phone number to the box. You could take the box with you. So you Correct. could take it on vacations. You could take it to a second home. You could take it when you move. Um, yeah. And you're, you know, so consumer uh, IP telephony. Um, so you get there. The company's public. The yep. consumer IP uh, telephony business is in terminal decline. Um, and uh, they had started, if I remember correctly, they had started a little bit of business transformation to, uh, you know, sort of B2B virtual telco, uh, virtual PBXs. And they basically said to you, all right, public company, you got to execute a uh, massive uh, business transformation from B2, from B2C, where you're kind of milking the cash cow, to B2B, where you're trying to disrupt new space, and you got to do it in the public eye. Yeah, That was the thing that fascinated me about that journey, because that's sort of the classic case where you expect the buyout guys to come in, you know, take the company private, let you fix it up, and then get it back public again. But you had to right. do it in the public eye, first-time public CEO and self-described startup guy. So talk a little bit about that, that journey. So first of all, I think there's a lot of parallel to how we as startup folks are managing boards often that are investor-led, VC-led, which have, you know, sometimes a different view. So let's just go back to the situation. Everything looks clean and, and pretty in hindsight. The chairman who hired me was the founder of Vonage. He was not ready to give up on the consumer business. And the consumer business, the residential telephony business, was 90% of the revenue. So, and, and the B2B side had happened through an acquisition that predated me by about a year. So we were about $850 million in total revenue. $775 was the legacy residential business, and about $75 million was this, the business segment, the B2B side. So first, it was, how do we fix the $775? which when I got there in the fall of 2014 was already in its sixth consecutive year of decline. So because, again, in hindsight, it became obvious that this was in terminal decline. But what happens in situations like this where you have a melting ice cube, at times it doesn't look like the, melt, the ice cube is melting sort of, one, that it's terminal, that it's permanent. Um, Two, it's happened in very slow, insidious, sort of tiny little baby steps along the way. It's like the parable of the boiled frog. You know, you're sort of, you got boiled slowly. Um, and so there's the belief at all times about, well, we can turn it around. And it's interesting. I always, when I, if, as I've handled board meetings, I always write a memo to the board in advance of the board meeting talking about what is the theme? What are we trying to cover in this next board meeting? Because obviously we can all, you know, do 100 PowerPoints and you kind of lose, you know, you can't see the, the forest through all those trees. Thematically, those first two board meetings I had, the theme of that memo was bend the curve. 
how do we take a six-year decline and bend the curve back up? And we were de declining at sort of a 10 to 15% negative CAGR. Um, by the third meeting, the theme was don't invest to try to defy gravity. Don't invest to try to defy gravity, gravity because we had come to the conclusion that this was in fact a melting ice cube, that we weren't gonna develop a feature or a go-to-market or a pricing plan that was fundamentally gonna turn and bend this curve back up. That's why, by the way, it's important to change out CEOs every number of years because my predecessor, very capable guy, but in a sense was part of the boiled frog phenomenon. He had right. sort of been fighting the good fight for six years but have been having sort of slow and steady decline. You know, to his credit, he led that acquisition to buy the B2B side. Right, um, but he, le but he, left, sort of he left the work of bringing the founder and the board along for the ride with business transformation to his successor. Correct. So he set me up from that perspective. And then, then it's sort of going through and sort of having, you know, you, you have no particular allegiance to the past strategy. You're looking at the reason it's, it's important to have a new CEO is you're looking at things very objectively and saying, huh, what is the likelihood that I can bend this curve back up? And the conclusion by the third meeting was, boy, it's a gravitational pull. I would be trying to invest believing that I could defy gravity. That's not a very good bet. So that created clarity of where we're going. Then it was about tactically, what do you do? And so, you know, I'll tell you one sort of quick thing we did is we functionalized what had been a business unit structure because the 90% business unit was going to fight like hell to avoid resources going to the 10%. By functionalizing, it basically then became a dollar of incremental investment. Where was the next best dollar spent? And it was clear it was on the B2B side. It's interesting, once the lines crossed, and it took about three years before business through organic and inorganic growth was larger than consumer, then we went back and re-divisionalized or re-business uh, unit it because then you wanted to then treat it, the old residential, as a pure cash cow. So even managing the workforce along the way, there's things I could say in the third year in a global all-hands meeting that I couldn't say six months in because the people who are on the 90% side, you, you know, are going to be saying, oh, I'm working for the, you know, I'm working for something that's dying or the cash cow. Right. So it all had sorts of challenges, but we were very fortunate to make the shift. And now what was, you know, we, the, the company after I left a year and a half later was sold to Ericsson for about $6 billion. When I got there, the market cap was about $725 million. Now, again, under my watch, we only got up to about $4.5 billion. But we, again, took something that was kind of dead and dying and completely repositioned it and ultimately got a great exit. But it's, and at your point, doing it in the light of day as a public company is hard. And when you think about that um, transformation, which, you know, incredibly successful transformation, um, I love how you just talked about the, the uh, shift in organizational design and how that supported, um, you know, sort of driven by and supported the strategy at a couple different points. Um, was there, you know, are there another one or two um, kind of big execution steps you could point to that helped support that transformation? So you got the strategy right. It took yeah. a bunch of years to execute. Uh, you did a bunch of M&A, reorg, any, anything else in there that's sort of uh, maybe valuable to, uh, to reflect on? I think the, um, 
once we became very clear of where we're going, and again, it'll sound almost trite, but it's like being super simple and clear, being unambiguous of where we're going. Because I think running companies, my own experience, it really distills down to will and skill. Will and skill. You find folks who are just, they don't have the will to change. They're going to be the obstructionist to the change. And if you can't, you don't have the will, then you, you got to leave. Then there's a function of skill. And you may have an opportunity to coach up certain people. And often you can't. Um, and then you still have to make changes. But my own experience is be super clear and unambiguous of where we're going. The bus is going this way. You're on the bus or off the bus. That's the will issue. Then it's a function of skill, which again is a longer process. That helped because I think it all comes down to the humans. You know, quite frankly, we're all human. I mean, change is so inherently unsettling that we like to sit back and say, everybody's going to sort of kind of appreciate nuance. I think from our jobs running companies, uh, you clearly manage through nuance at times, but you have to set objectives in a very un-nuanced bay, way because I think it helps people under it helps people's comfort with change. Um, because if you lay it out in a nuanced way, I don't think they'll get it. Yeah, the clarity of purpose um, is super helpful for the organization. It's essential for the organization. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk now about your transition. Um, to Avaya. And the question, so the question I want to ask you there is, I know, uh, you know, you left Vonage, you um, took some downtime, you uh, rode a bike across America, which, um, which we will talk about in another podcast. Uh, and I know you were thinking about doing some totally different things, like some nonprofit things, some things around, you know, civic engagement, etc. Um, what made you go back into the fire? So um, other than my wife, Patty, referring to it as a character flaw, uh, the, um, the reality is, I think, you know, there's the old expression, those who can do. I, I'm wired this way. I fundamentally enjoy it. In the two years that I was retired, I look back with enormous gratitude over that period of time It, you know, there was a sense of renewal and you know personal restoration. Uh, got to do my bike ride, a whole bunch of other stuff, philanthropically and otherwise. Um, but I enjoy this type of craziness. And so the, the joke though is be careful what you ask for, because Avaya is a you know a very large business, very, very global. So in the enterprise communication space, it's the granddaddy, its lineage goes back to ATT and Lucent. And we were a pretty darn broken company, both in terms of uh, seriously overlevered uh, and bloated in terms of cost. So it needed a big financial restructuring, which we did through a Chapter 11 that we went in and out very quickly. Um, and then a fundamental business repositioning, which is sort of your classic realigning product and go to market strategy, aligning the organization in support of that strategy and revitalize culture. Because similar to the Vonage situation, we had been in decline for a number of years. And what happens is when companies and people aren't winning, it, it's very dispiriting to the organization. And so how do you take an organization that 
is dispirited and uh, and clean it up. And so the restructuring is two big pieces. We're, we're blessed in the fact that the financial restructuring is done. So through a chapter 11 had a beginning and an end. We emerged two months ago and it's like we now have a go on offense capital structure. We're, we're really, really well capitalized. Along the way, we had to make some very painful decisions about cutting costs, like a half billion dollar cost program to right size to the current uh, revenue. Now, even in the midst of that, and that involved, you know, a lot, exiting a lot of people, um, you have an organization that has a much greater spring in its step today because I think it believes in the strategy, sees where people see where their role is in the strategy. The product strategy is clear and unambiguous, as is the go-to-market. We've aligned the organization underneath it and spending a lot of time trying to revitalize the culture. You know, the financial restructuring has a beginning and an end. The business restructuring is ongoing. So we have a great deal of, of execution work to do. But like I always say, you know, like for those of startup folks, we always have execution risk. Every We have to come to work every morning. We all have execution risk. In the startup land, we all know, we have risks that are, you know, that things sometimes we can't control. Where financing risk, the market could shut on us from a VC point of view. Um, we have market development risk go back to my smartphone experiences before when does the market actually get large enough to support what i'm trying to do and we we can see it but it takes let's say years longer and you run out of capital so those are risks that are extraneous to what you can control as the operator what we've gotten to now is we have execution risk but every company has execution risk and i always sit back and say i'll take execution risk every day of the week Any and day. that's what we're yeah. going to do yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So interesting. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be great to have a, uh, a front row or at least second row seat to, uh, to see how that uh, unfolds over the next few years for you. I appreciate uh, it. Let me close with this. Uh, what is one piece of advice that you would give your younger self in your first CEO job or your second CEO job, knowing what you know now, um, you know, at this point in your career? Um, this may sound harsh and it's not intended. I think what I have learned is relative to at times team members that, um, leaders, um, that if it's not working out, make those decisions more quickly than I've done in the past. And everybody tells you that. I mean, the fact that I'm, you know, wizened or, you know, I have the wisdom of being in my career for a long time. I'm old. You know, I can trust my gut. But I think you just need to, you know, you got to develop a gut. But it's like when the person's not right, often or almost always, you're not coaching up. You know, the old expression, you can't turn a three into a nine. And so make those decisions and move forward. And um that was my younger self could have done a little better job at that. All right. Alan Masaryk, thank you for sharing your story today. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Great seeing you. Thanks all. 